0: If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John 17. That's John chapter 17. Before we start, I want to take a special moment to pray this morning. Sean mentioned earlier he'll be preaching later in the week A uh, sermon on the sanctity of life. And today's sermon here is not going to be on that. We're in a series on prayer. But uh, I want to pray, especially. How are we doing? All right. I want to pray for my headset. Uh, But I just want to pray for my brother this week as he preaches. Here's my experience personally when you. Preach against such a great evil. When you do something in your life against Satan, he is going to come against you. And sometimes it can be in a very dark and personal way. And I just want to pray for you this week, brother, um, and your family, because I know anytime you take a stand for God, man, you're in a vulnerable position from the world, from Satan, and uh, we're just going to pray against it. Uh, so I'm just going to take a moment to pray for you. Anyone who wants to come to this brother, put your hands on him. It's a tough week, tough week to preach. You can do that. And I'm just going to take a few moments to pray for him. I'm going to pray for Micah 6.8. That's the passage he's going to be preaching this week. Micah 6, eight says this. He has told you, oh man, what is good. We all know what is good and what is not good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. I'm going to pray this over you now. God, I pray for my brother. What an honor it is to be asked to preach training pastors about your love for justice, God. Your hate of evil. Your desire for us to walk in love and kindness. So I I pray first that you would bless his word this week. He's preaching for the unborn. Those who have rights but often no defenders. The vulnerable. The voiceless. Little ones that you love. So I pray for that message to take heart this week. And then I pray for my brother. Be with him. Let him know this church loves him. Satan will attack. Not a question of if, it's a question of when. And I pray that you would give him a special fortitude, a strong faith, and a deep abiding joy in Jesus. God, Jesus has overcome. Jesus has won the victory. God, we could pray all day for these things, but we want to get to your word. But hear us, God, by your spirit. Come to Dana. Come to the kids. Rescue them this week as it will be a hard challenge to stand up for the unborn and against evil. And as He stands for those who are born in impoverished situations and hard situations, guard His heart, guard His faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We're jumping in our series on prayer coming from John 17. And this week, the bookends of my pastel of children's both have birthdays. And so we had uh, kind of a traditional birthday party for my six year old. And Asa had some friends over from the neighborhood, had some kids from TCC who were nice enough to come over. And they did all the normal kitty stuff they had games we had cake we had a pinata we had our youtube moment and one kid was on the pinata with a bat right and he's just swinging away and these poor kids i don't think he played much ball but he he didn't hit it and he, he, he missed it pretty bad and right when he missed a younger girl probably three was walking by, <laughs> and the bat went like this, in slow motion, everything slowed down, it went do, 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 and just missed an inch from leveling her, so praise God, nobody was hurt, but uh, some kids did bring some gifts over, right, and uh, I've been to a lot of kitty birthday parties, and I've never seen this, uh, one kid brought in a glass canning jar with something in it to, the, to my six-year-old's birthday party. And I thought, my thought was, man, what is what would a six-year-old put? Is it a frog? I mean, what what is it? Uh, is it a train, an old train? You know, they stick in there and like, here's my gift. It's an old train. So I was really perplexed by that. And I went over and it turned out it was canned pickles that this six-year-old had brought my six-year-old. And so I went <laughs> to my son Asa and I said, what's up with this? And he began to tell me, he's like, oh, yes. These are hot rod, uh, red hot, red hot pickles, cinnamon. And you begin to tell me the process of how these things were made. You put them in the oven, it takes two days, and you add these. He's never made them, I'm sure of that. (laughs) How do you know all this? Well, it turns out for months, this one friend of his, who's a special friend, they don't see each other now because they go to different schools, but they went through preschool together in the trenches, the grit and the grind of preschool. And for months, this sweet child would bring in these pickles and he and Asa would just sit there and eat them. And so he was so thoughtful, even though he hadn't seen Asa for months, among all the space toys and the Legos and the cars, there sat one thoughtful jar of pickles. And I thought, man, that's the kind of friend you want, right? Yeah. Tried and true friends are going to do Special things. And in today's text, in John 17, as we focus on prayer together, we see Jesus praying for his people, for his friends. And one of the most special gifts you can give your friends in your life is thoughtful, biblical, gospel drenched prayer. We see this. Today, Jesus pleads for his friends, for his disciples, to his Father. And in their most desperate moment, Jesus cries out, Holy Father, keep them, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. So today what we're going to do is just look a little closer at John 17. See how Jesus prays for his friends. This will encourage you in a couple of ways. One, it should encourage you to know that the God who spoke everything into existence, who created the world, Jesus himself, is praying for you. That should be encouraging. But also, it should challenge you to pray in a biblical way for your friends, your people, especially in this church. So let's look at this text together. We're going to start in verse 6. we have been preaching through this. We've done the first part. If you missed it, sorry, but we're starting in verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord here. This is Jesus praying to God the Father. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. So first question here, who does Jesus pray for? What are the marks of someone that? Jesus is praying for here. The text gives us several of them. First one is those given to him by the Father. You'll notice in this text, Jesus is praying specifically for those given to him by the Father. One of the most striking features of this text, is there's a lot of transactional language. Hopefully you heard it as I read it. The Father has given the Son... There's been a transaction there. It's given the son, the great shepherd, a specific people to keep. Listen again, verse six. The people whom you gave me. Again in verse six, you gave them to me. Verse nine, those whom you have given me. Then he says it negatively. I'm not praying for the world. It's a complex statement. Obviously some will be saved out of the world, but there's a special pastoral way that Jesus is praying for those whom the father has given him verse 10 all mine are yours and yours are mine you can see the nature there's been a transaction here on the eve of his crucifixion we see Jesus intent on praying for a special people selected by the father these were his followers elected by God for salvation To these people, in verse 6, Jesus manifested his name. Verse 8, gave God's words. Indeed, at the beginning of the book, John opens up in the first chapter, and Jesus is called the word who became flesh. Meaning, Jesus is the apex of God's revelation. And he is revealed specifically to those God has given Jesus to shepherd And to save. The Apostle Paul talked about this. In Ephesians 1. When he thinks about this. He thinks of God choosing people to give to the son. And this makes Paul begin to praise. And to worship. Listen to what he said. Ephesians 1. Paul says blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Even as he has chosen us. In love having predestined us. Then what does he say? To the praise of his glorious grace. Writer Fred Zaspel says this. In the face of our rebellion and against our senseless, sinful determinations, he purposed better for us. For reasons known only to him, he chose to save us as trophies of his kindness and grace. Overlooking others, he has favored us in the very greatest way possible, revealing himself to us in love and allowing us to know him. Praise belongs only to him. And a right recognition of his glorious election makes us eager to render it to him. It's a hard saying that the father gave some people to the son. It wasn't so hard that Jesus didn't recognize it. And didn't own it. And he talked that way. There's a lot to ponder from this notion of the Father giving a people to the Son. But instead of just thinking this week, I would like to call you to action. Follow Jesus. Will you pray to the Father on behalf of those who were given to him. That he gave to the Son. Will you pray this week for your friends in this church? Who were given to Jesus by the Father. You can start like Paul. He simply praised God when he thought, oh, God gave us certain people to be shepherded by the Son. Apostle Paul just praised God. He said, Thank you. You can start there. Now, who does Jesus pray for? Those given to him by the Father. They're also described in another way in this passage, if we keep reading, as those who know and believe. These are people you can be praying for. Those who know and believe. Look at verse 7 and 8. Hear the language. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you have sent me. He's praying for those who know and believe. Knowing and believing. Those who did this were on Jesus' mind in his final prayer. I once watched this documentary. It's a film called Man on Wire. Sounds like a Strange Planet comic, but it's not. It's the name of a documentary. And it's from 1974. And it's about a Frenchman named Philippe Petit. This guy was good at many things, but one thing he was an expert at was walking on high wires. So what he did in 1974 when the Twin Towers were being built, he and his friends snuck up them all the way to the top, and he took a fishing rod, and he threw a fishing rod between the towers, and his buddy caught it, and he hooked on a rope, and he reeled the rope back over, right? And then he tied a heavier rope to that, and eventually his friend tied a cable, and so they've now stretched this cable all the way across the twin towers that were designed to move with the wind. And then Philippe steps out. Got a pole, he steps out, and he makes eight passes between the towers. The onlookers below are stunned. He sees them, so he starts dancing. He kneels down. (laughs) He even lays down on the wire. This guy is crazy. So for me, I'm very scared of heights. This is astounding. But if you watch this documentary, what you see is that he both knows what he's doing and he trusts in this cable that has been laid. This is what Jesus says, defines his people. There's an intellectual assent to say, I know God is for us. I know he's the creator. There's also this trust. In what he has done for us. Jesus said. I'm going to pray for those. Who trust and believe. As you endeavor to pray. For your friends in the faith. Pray for them to know. And to believe Jesus. Don't forget. In Mark 9. We see a father of an epileptic. Who states I believe. But help my unbelief. Pray that. Pray for your leaders. Pray for the unwavering faith of those who lead you and disciple you. Pray for our mothers as they would know in truth that God is for them and he's working all things for good. People were lined up here and I thought, man, I hope they savor these baby moments. Go away quick. Pray for mothers need a lot of help in seeing Jesus in the details. Pray for them to know and to believe. So that's two people that we see Jesus praying for. Those given to him, those who know and believe. Here's one more. It's those who obey. Jesus is praying specifically for those who obey. I get this from the end of verse 6. He says, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have what? They have kept your word. They have kept your word. Obedience, turns out, is a big deal for Jesus. We might have the impression, even in our popular culture, that Jesus is all about forgiveness, which he is, but he would never demand anything. But that's not the biblical picture. Jesus takes obedience to his words, very seriously. Earlier, John chapter 8, verse 51. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. See how seriously he takes it? Also, promises he makes are wrapped up in following him in word keeping. John fourteen twenty-three. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the father will love him. And we will come to him and we will make our home with him. That'd be a nice thing to pray for your friends, wouldn't it? God, come and make your home with them. And this verse is tied to their obedience. Jesus called us to obey his teaching. That's challenging for any of us who've tried the challenge with obeying Jesus. As you quickly find out, it's nearly impossible, right? It's very hard. As we seek to keep his word, we're reminded that only Jesus achieved perfect obedience, right? I read an article recently, a guy named Micah McCormick. And he urges us to reflect on Jesus' obedience as we're trying to obey Jesus, right? It may not be a natural thing. You might want to think about how great you are. I can do this. I can do this. When you're thinking about obeying Jesus, this guy's like, no. Focus on Jesus' obedience to the Father as you're trying to obey. Listen to this quote. It's kind of long, but you can handle it. It says there's two things that you want to marvel at about Jesus' obedience. First, marvel at the unique obedience of the Savior, we admire those who achieve a perfect score in an Olympic competition, right? We like those people. This week in the NBA, number one pick, debuted Zion Williamson. He did something nobody's ever done before. He went four for four in his debut, first try, four for four from three-point land. Nobody's ever done that. Everybody's talking about it on the sports channel. Because we admire those people who have perfection. Micah says... But how much more should we marvel at the God-man who waged a lifetime of warfare with Satan and sin and did so in perfect obedience? The crowds might have gawked at the shame Christ experienced when he hung exposed on the cross, but we should gaze in love and admiration at the one who willingly came to provide a perfect sinless rescue for lost sheep. He went 4,000 for 4,000. In his debut, he was perfect in obedience and One more thing. Secondly, as you marvel at Christ's obedience, praise God that his acceptance of us is not ultimately based on our obedience. Jesus can say, keep my words and know that God's acceptance isn't ultimately based on that. When we accurately understand the righteous requirements of God and couple that understanding with an honest assessment of our own life, we could easily be overwhelmed by fear and anxiety, but we have a representative. A second Adam from above. And because we are in Christ, all that is his is ours. That's good news. All that is his is ours, including his perfect obedience. So as you pray for your friends this year, this month, this week, pray for their obedience. That's what Jesus did. Then praise God for Christ's obedience on their behalf. So who does Jesus pray for? Those who obey. Those who know and believe. Those who are given to him by the Father. One last thing. After we ask the question, who does Jesus pray for? He begins to answer now a question he'll keep answering as the text goes on. What does Jesus pray for? He begins to show us what he's praying for, right? What does Jesus pray for? Now that we've seen this, we can look in verse 11 and 12 to begin to get the answer. Read verse 11 with me. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction That the scripture might be fulfilled. So what does Jesus pray for? What does Jesus pray? First, keep them from evil. Keep them from evil. Verse 11, Jesus says, keep these people in your name. And then he mentions that Jesus has never not kept them. The idea is, I have kept them here. Now you keep them because I'm leaving. Right? Jesus says, I've never not kept them except one. There is an exception. When I think about my friends, there is this son of destruction. The son of destruction serves as a warning to us all as one who has fallen away. Who is he? Well, verse 12 lets us know that his turning, whoever this guy was, his turning was no surprise to the Father. In fact, it was prophesied long ago. He says that the Scripture might be fulfilled. He's referring, we think, to Psalm 41.9, where we read this. See if it sounds like anybody in the Bible, you know. Psalmist said, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. In the Passion narrative of Jesus Christ, It is Judas who is breaking bread with Jesus. Then he runs out of the room and then he betrays him. The son of destruction is Judas Iscariot. The turncoat, a pretender disciple, a wolf in sheep's clothing. John 13 actually tells us that Satan overcame Judas in two different ways. First, he put things into his heart. And secondly, Satan actually is said to enter into Judas, if you read that in John 13. Judas then goes on to fight against Christ instead of for him. So for clarity, Satan didn't enter into Judas while he was a Christian. Satan entered into someone everyone thought was a Christian, right? Many appear to follow Christ, but only those who persevere against evil will prove to be genuine believers. What does destruction mean? Son of destruction in the New Testament, that usually refers to final condemnation. Later in the Bible, Paul's going to use a similar term. You might remember 2 Thessalonians 2.3. He's going to call the Antichrist a son of perdition. Perdition means damnation or eternal punishment. So what we see is G- Judas Judas is a pattern of an evil person like the antichrist, who will always be against Christ and his purposes and his church, and as sure as in chapter seventeen two, Jesus says, "All who come after me are given eternal life; those who follow Judas and Satan are doomed to a certain death." Even as the Son now prays in the garden in chapter seventeen for the Father to protect his people from Satan, Jesus knows his death actually ensures the very protection of those he's pleading for. Here's something interesting. If you, if you care about biblical prayer, this prayer in John 17 is Jesus' last and longest prayer that we have. But a few chapters earlier, we actually see him praying to the Father again. And this time we see the Father answer him. That happens in John 12. Both of these prayers in John share something in common. If you're looking for patterns in Jesus' prayer, here's the pattern you see in John. They're both really serious about the reality of evil. All right? Listen to this, John 12, 28. Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. I don't know what he's expecting, but God spoke to him right there. Everybody heard it. The voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. What did God mean by have glorified it? Well, he was talking about Jesus's perfect life, his righteousness, his sinlessness, all of that glorified God, the father. When God said, I'm going to glorify it again. What does that mean? Here author Don Carson reflects. And he says, in other words, the place where God is supremely glorified is in the death, resurrection, and exaltation of His Son. Jesus' glorification is His return to the glory He had with the Father before the world began. But this return is via the wretched odium of the cross. Here, God's goodness is supremely displayed. God's compassion and saving mercy are intensely poured out in the death of Jesus. But what I want you to see about this text in John 12 is that his judgment is also poured out. Keep reading. Back in John 12, verse 29. So Jesus is praying to the Father. The Father speaks to Jesus, and the crowd is getting all this. And it said, The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it must have thundered. It was so impressive. Others said, no, no, an angel spoke to Jesus. Jesus answered and said, look, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Verse 31 is key. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show him by what kind of death he was going to die. So if you're following what does this mean? In what sense did the death of Jesus cast out the ruler of this world? Because he's talking in John 12 about the same thing he's talking about in John 17. First John three eight he says it again. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So what happened at the cross to cause the demise of Satan? Well, simply put, at the cross, the devil lost all grounds in his appeal against sinful humanity. All who once stood unrighteous and could be accused now stand covered with the righteousness of Christ if they have faith and repent. Jesus is the sacrifice for our evil. Satan can no longer accuse God's people he can he looks like an idiot if he doesn't so he's defeated he's revealed to be a fool Jesus as the new Adam succeeded where the old one failed it's interesting if you try to look back at ancient sermons outside of the Bible we don't have a ton of uh, compared to today if you want a sermon you can go on the line and hear a thousand good ones If you want to get early sermons, it's harder to find them in the ancient world. But we do have one guy who cranked out a lot around the uh, AD 300 year. um, Famous preacher back then. John Chrysostom. And I I read a little sermon from him online. And uh, he was talking about this point. Here's what he said. About the defeat of Satan. He said, do you see how the devil is defeated by the very weapons of his prior victory? Think back to the garden where... The devil attacked Adam and Eve. The devil had vanquished Adam by means of a tree. The fruit, right? Christ vanquished the devil by means of the tree of his cross. The tree revealed Adam and his weakness, laying prostrate, naked, low. The tree of the cross manifested to all the world, the victorious Christ, naked, nailed on high. Adam's death sentence passed on all who came after him. Christ's death gave life to all of his children. As we collect ourselves back in John 17, it's amazing to see Jesus ask the Father to keep his friends from evil by the power of his own death. Think about that. Very rare you pray, God, keep these people from evil by my death. Jesus knew exactly what was coming, and he still asked for it. Now what does that have to do with prayer? Well, think back to the son of destruction for a moment, Judas. The one Satan overcame. And it might be helpful to do something I haven't done a ton of, is consider actually what Judas was going through just for a moment. When you're thinking about praying that your friends won't be overcome by Satan, right? Think about what Judas actually may have been going through. Well, when you think about Judas, we know some things that are very obvious that he struggled with. We know he struggled with greed, right? We have in the Bible, we know that he stole the shared treasury. He stole from that of the disciples. Then he took blood money from the chief priests. So obviously love of money is a place Satan likes to strike. If you have friends, they might love money. Judas apparently loved it in the context of not having enough, right? You may have a friend who doesn't have enough money. You may have a friend who has plenty of money and they still love it. This is a strategic point where Satan apparently strikes at those who would follow Jesus. So as you're praying, you can ask these questions. Does one of your friends have some money? Does one of your friends need more money? Pray that they don't love it, they're not consumed by it, because that's where Satan came in. and turn, one of the hand-picked 12 against Jesus himself. Cry out, Holy Father, keep them in your name and free from Satan's bewitching charm surrounding money. What else was Jesus Judas What else was Judas going through as he's trying to follow Jesus? Well, we know that Jesus gave Judas power. Don't forget, he' one of the twelve disciples. The Bible says that Jesus gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. I don't know where you're at in your job or your social status, but you probably have never cured diseases by speaking, or you probably never beat off a ton of demons. But Judas had the power to do that, he had the authority to do that. Do you think Satan can today tempt your friends who might be in positions of power in their job and their social standing? In their family? Any of your friends in leadership at work? In their home? Are they attempted to abuse it? Pray this prayer for them. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Liberated from the devil's allure towards abuse. Finally, here's another thing. Only in the Bible, towards the end of uh, the ministry... Of Jesus. Do we see. Judas getting directly. Attacked by Satan. It was at the climax of what Jesus was trying to do. And he told his disciples. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to end this. That was kind of scary for them. They didn't quite understand it. And it was at that moment. That Satan attacked him. As Jesus revealed. He's marching toward his death. You think. Judas may have had a little anxiety there. I would have. Did he have fear? Did he have panic, restlessness, or worry? Wouldn't surprise me at all. Do any of your friends struggle with anxiety or other mental illnesses? I'm sure you have friends that face these same challenges. You think Satan might want to pick that strategic point to attack? Pray against that. Pray like Jesus. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Forbid Satan from using mental illness for his evil. These things, money, power, mental illness, they're morally neutral, right? They're not good or or bad. They are. are. But they seem to be places in Judas' life where Satan could have used to strike So we need to pray that he wouldn't by the power of Jesus. Finally, I'm thankful that when Jesus prays for his people, he doesn't just pray a prayer from something, but he actually prays a prayer for something, right? He's praying against evil, but he's praying for something. Let's look at in the text, verse 11. He's praying that God would keep them for unity for what he calls oneness. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The basis for unity among believers is nothing short of Trinitarian love, specifically between the Father and the Son. The divine family bond is meant to be our aim so hard for us to envision the depth of this holy love between the Father and the Son. Why is that? What's well, because every example here on earth of fatherhood it is broken, it's tainted, not perfect. I saw a video I'm going to try to throw up there this week. It's a good example of imperfect fatherhood, I think. Do we have that video? Can you see this? This is on. This is trending online. Let's see if we can... Okay. <laughs> Lois... <laughs> <laughs> this kid's like a year and a half old and uh, oh baby's viral that's what I watch um, <laughs> Yeah, we only saw it once but I thought that was hilarious uh, only a dad would do that I don't know if a mom would have done that um, but that's the type of examples we have of father son love so it's hard to even envision the massive love that our heavenly father has for his son that he's talking about here in the text, even in our most shining moments, we still fall short. Last Friday, I was taking my, uh, my youngest daughter to have an oral surgery done. She's fine. Everything went well. Um, but we had to do this procedure. I took her in there, and I met the doctor for the first time. And he says, it's going to be a couple hours here. I will take her back to do the uh, procedure. Here's the waiting room. Some parents like to go back, and some like to stay in the waiting room. (laughs) I had brought a couple hours' work with me. Moms don't hate me, but seemed like a nice guy. And I said, you you take her back. I trust you can do your thing. I'll be here in the waiting room. I've got Wi-Fi. I can do my work. And that was my plan, right? Maybe not my finest moment as a father, but by George, I was going to be efficient. And so I was sitting there, and the way, the way the place is set up is there's an open hallway back to the room where they're going to do the little operation. And I'm, I'm zoning in, and I'm starting to do some work, and about 10 minutes into my work, uh, it becomes obvious to me by what I'm hearing that there is a challenge with the anesthesia. Um, you got laughing gas option, you got local option option, Both of those were presenting some challenges with my child. And so I just walked back there and said, I think I can help here. And the doctor was great. He said, yes, I think there are some things you could do. So I I walked around with my baby there and prayed for her. And uh, we we got all settled down. We got in a chair. And I just sat there and held her hand. And two different people were doing really technical stuff. That I didn't know how to do. No, I was just there talking to her, stroking her hand, telling her I love her, holding her hand. And I was thinking to myself, this, what I'm doing at my tender best moment here is less than father, son, love, right? But it's not more than what God is asking me to do for those I am to be one with in Christ according to this text, right? Our most tender moments are the type of care he wants us to have for one another. Keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. Later in the gospel, in this chapter, he tells us what's at stake in our one another love that he's praying for. Here it is. Bump down to verse 21. You can read. Praise the same thing again. God, may they be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, here's the ultimate end, right? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Oh, that's what's at stake. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What's at stake is nothing less than the saving faith of the world, right? Some of us over Christmas got together and we read through David Platt's book, Something Needs to Change, and then we got together and we talked about it, and it was a real blessing. If you ever read that book, one of the questions you walk away with is what can I do to impact the vast lostness in this world? I think Jesus might say, step one, love people in this church as the Father has loved me. That's what he's praying for. That's what he's praying for there. It's not all we have to do. Perhaps that's the best place to start. Why does this matter for your prayer life? Let's call on God to build up your friends into being people who love divinely. Look at Jesus' relationship to his Father. Father was present. The Father assured him. The Father affirmed his purpose. The Father was on his team. The Father listened. Pray for that in your friend's life. May they love like that. Pray for that in your children's life. May they turn into those type of people. Pray for people in this church to love each other with a God to Jesus type of love. It's not natural. It has to be spirit spurned. Who did Jesus pray for? Those given to Him by the Father. Those who obey. Those knowing and believing. What did He pray Keep those people from evil. Keep us from evil and keep us for unity. Let's pray together.